Hello, welcome to Asbury. My name is Pastor Mike. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as interviews and special devotionals. We hope these messages inspire and support you as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions or want to have further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking out our website at asburymaitland.org. I'm one of the pastors here at Asbury. Uh, To those of you online, uh, we encourage you to like or love this video, if you haven't done so already, to interact with us in the comments section, say good morning, Uh, let us know who you're worshiping with, if you're worshiping with anybody right now, if we can pray for you today, leave a prayer request in the the, uh, comments section, and if you'd like to connect with our church family, leave your email address there, and that way we can follow up with you uh, virtually. Well, after taking a break last week to say goodbye to Pastors Mike and Madeline, We now return to our sermon series, our four-week sermon series on the Old Testament book of Ruth. We got the graphic for the series up here. We're calling the series, Ruth, A Story of Redemption. Ruth, A Story of Redemption. And the reason we're going with this name is that some variation or version of the word redemption shows up at least 23 times in the book of Ruth. That Ruth is a story about the God who redeems all things, even those things that quite frankly appear irredeemable. I'm gonna say that once more. Ruth is a story about the God who redeems all things, even those things that, quite frankly, appear irredeemable. Now, I realize that some of us are joining in the series for the first time, so we missed the first two messages. Others of us, it's been a couple of weeks since the last message, so our memories might be kind of fuzzy when it comes to Ruth. What I want to do first, before we go to Ruth 3, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 today, is I want to summarize where we've been so far in this story. So I'll remind us that the story of Ruth takes place somewhere around 1100, maybe 1080 BC, and it takes place during the violent, turbulent, chaotic period of the judges, when there was no king in Israel, no established leadership for the people of God. And in the opening chapter, Ruth chapter one, the story centers around this woman named Naomi. Uh, Naomi is married to her husband. His name is Elimelech. Uh, They have two sons, Malone and Kilion, and they live in the town of Bethlehem. Uh, But because of a famine, this family makes the tough choice of leaving Bethlehem, leaving the promised land, leaving behind everything they knew and loved and was familiar to them, and they journey to this place called Moab, just outside of the promised land. Now, Moab was a place with a shady past, and so the decision to go there was questionable at best. And then when they got to Moab, tragedy struck for this family because Elimelech, uh, the husband, the father, he just passes away. We don't know how he passed away, in what manner he passed away, All we know is that he passed away. And then to make matters even worse, these two sons, Malone and Kilion, they also pass away, leaving Naomi with nothing but two Moabite daughters-in-law whom her sons had married while they were there. And so these three women are widows, they're childless, they have no idea what the future holds. Well, then Naomi hears this report that there's food back in Bethlehem, that the famine is over. So she goes back there with her daughters-in-law who technically had an obligation to her. They were required Uh, to go with her because they were now a part of her family. But then on the way there, she changes her mind and she tries to dissuade her daughters-in-law from coming with her because she doesn't believe that there's anything for them in Bethlehem. So she says, go back home, go back to your families, go back to your gods, let's part ways. Well, the one daughter-in-law, Orpah, she's dissuaded, she goes back home, we never hear from her again. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, whom this book is named after, she refuses to leave. She looks at her mother-in-law and she says, 
Uh, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It's this beautiful picture of love, commitment, devotion. So Ruth chapter one closes with Ruth and Naomi, the ultimate odd couple. They're coming into Bethlehem. They're empty-handed. They literally have nothing. But the story isn't over because at the very end of chapter one, the writer makes this comment. He says that Ruth and Naomi come into Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. They come into Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest, which brings us to Ruth chapter two. Uh, now, there was a law in place in ancient Israel that said that wealthy landowners, if you were a person who owned land, you had a lot of money, wealthy landowners were not permitted to harvest their whole field, but instead were to leave a portion of their field unharvested so that those with nothing would have something to eat, specifically poor people and foreigners. And Ruth fit both of these categories because number one, she was poor, she had nothing, she had no money, but then number two, she was a foreigner. She was a Moabite living in the land of Israel. And so she says to her mother-in-law, I'm gonna go harvest in somebody's field, knowing that this law was in place. And the field where she happens to go harvest, out of all the fields where she could have gone to, there were a lot of fields where she could have gone to, but the one field where she ends up belongs to this guy named Boaz. Ruth didn't realize it yet, but Boaz was related to Elimelech, her father-in-law who had passed away. And because of that, he has the ability to marry Ruth and have children with her because of how Jewish marriages worked back then. So Ruth is minding her own business. She's working in Boaz's field. Well, eventually she catches the attention of Boaz. So she and Boaz share this great connection. They have this first date, we might even say, this really powerful connection. And then she goes home and she tells her mother-in-law where she's been, how she's been in Boaz's field. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, gets all giddy and excited. She puts together the pieces that Boaz can marry Ruth. This is how God is gonna redeem this whole tragedy. And then when we think we've reached the climax of the story, we've reached the culmination of the story. Boaz is gonna marry Ruth. They're gonna walk off together into a sunset. We're gonna hear wedding bells. It's kind of a letdown at the end of chapter two. So we stopped off at chapter two last time. This is what it says, Ruth chapter two, uh, verse 23. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer, and all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. When did Ruth come into Boaz's field? At what point? In late spring, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now we come to the end of the barley harvest, the beginning of another harvest season, the wheat harvest. In other words, three months has gone by. Three months has gone by since Ruth and Boaz share that powerful connection there's been no apparent movement in the story, no development in this relationship. We start to wonder, what's going on? What's happening? Which leads us to the first dimension of faith that I wanna talk about this morning, that faith involves waiting. Faith involves waiting. And we're not good at waiting, amen? None of us are good at waiting, I'm certainly not. Uh, think about it, we're people of fast food. We're people of speed dating, overnight deliveries, one week in diets, we want what we want, and when do we want it? Now. We don't want it later on. We want it right now. In fact, as I was working on this message, uh, I remember this story about these three women. Uh, they're in this accident, and they pass away, and they go to the gates of heaven, and there they meet St. Peter. That's always how these stories go, right? Uh, these stories don't necessarily have theological grounding or scriptural grounding, but they do make for pretty good stories. 
So they go to heaven's gates and they meet St. Peter and St. Peter says to them, hey, you know what? I wanna talk with you all, but I have some business that I have to attend to. I'm a pretty busy guy, but I'll be back in a few moments. Well, more than a few moments pass by. A lot of time passes by, but eventually St. Peter comes back and he says to the first woman, hey, why don't you step into my office? And so they go into his office and he says, um, I'm really sorry about the wait. And the woman says, you know what? It's not a big deal. Uh, I am just thrilled by the opportunity to enter into heaven. And he was really pleased by her response. And he says, okay, well, in order to go into heaven, you just have to answer one question. All right, what's the question? How do you spell God? Well, that's easy, she says, G-O-D. And so he allows her to go into heaven. Calls the second woman to his office. Uh, I'm really sorry about the wait. You know what? I don't really care. I would wait a thousand years if I have to, if it means that I can see God face to face. And again, he was really pleased by this attitude. And he says, I just have one question for you, and then you can go into heaven. All right, what's the question? How do you spell God? G-O-D, she says. She goes into heaven. Calls on the third woman. I'm really sorry about the wait. Before he could even finish, she got all on top of him. She was upset, and she said, yeah, you should be sorry. You know, all my life on earth, I had to wait. I had to wait for the kids to come from school. I had to wait for the bus. I had to wait for my coffee break at work. I had to wait in line at the grocery store. And now you expect me to wait to get into heaven? I won't stand for it. How dare you? I don't care that you are St. Peter. And he says to her, okay, well, I just have one question for you, and then you can go into heaven. All right, what's the question? How do you spell Czechoslovakia? <laughs> Here, let me explain. <laughs> I'm not even sure I know how to spell Czechoslovakia. You know, as much as we struggle with waiting, though, the story of Ruth teaches us that waiting is a dimension of faith. Waiting is a dimension of faith. Waiting on God's timing. Waiting on God's purposes. Waiting for God's plan to be revealed and believing that even when it doesn't seem that way, that God is still working, that God is still moving, that God is still doing something behind the scenes, that God is bringing everything together for our good. I came across this commentary in the book of Ruth, and I thought this was really good. I'm gonna share with you. This is what David Jackman writes. He's a scholar, preacher. Waiting is difficult at the best of times, but it depends largely on how we look at the world. We come back to the central message of the book of Ruth, which is that of the hidden but active God who is at work continuously. Can we say continuously? Continuously, not sporadically, not randomly, continuously in the lives of God's people, even when they think that nothing is happening. You see, folks, you and I might think that nothing is happening. Ruth might have thought that nothing was happening as she continued to work each day in Boaz's field, but what she didn't realize is that God was behind the scenes. God was setting the stage for what was gonna happen next. And thanks be to God for her mother-in-law, Naomi, because Naomi, she was smart enough, she was perceptive enough to see what God was doing, and she encouraged her daughter-in-law to act when the moment was right. Which leads us to our chapter for today. I realized that was a long introduction, but that leads us to our chapter for today, Ruth chapter three. Now, just a heads up before we get into this chapter. Next to Song of Solomon, Ruth chapter three contains some of the most sexually charged material in all of scripture. Do I have your attention now? Next to Song of Solomon, Ruth chapter three contains some of the most sexually charged material in all of scripture. I kid us not, you're gonna see what I mean in a moment. But I would encourage us to really pay attention because within this chapter, 
is the other dimension of faith. That faith not only involves waiting on God as we've said, but faith also involves taking initiative and even taking a risk when it seems as if the God-ordained opportunity is right there in front of us. And hopefully, you'll see what I mean as we go throughout this chapter. So let's begin with verse one of chapter three. Uh, this is what the text says. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you. Uh, where was she living? She was living with her mother-in-law. It's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. That was a polite way of saying, Ruth, you gotta get out of here. You have been in my house way too long. It's time that we get you married. And knowing that she wanted her daughter-in-law married, this is the plan that Naomi develops. This is really brilliant. Uh, this is verse two. Boaz is a close relative of ours. We've talked about this. He was related to Elimelech, the father-in-law who had passed away. And he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. How many of you know what winnowing is? Anybody know what winnowing is? Okay, uh, to be honest with you, I really wasn't sure what winnowing was either. Uh, I'm a city boy, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, uh, not necessarily in a farming community. And so I had to look up winnowing online, but basically, and look what I have here. I know, I know, this is, this can be dangerous. We were doing American Gothic earlier in the service, right? as we were getting ready. But basically what would happen, at the end of the harvest season, again, this was the end of the barley harvest, at the end of the harvest season, as a worker, you would go to a secluded area, most likely on the side of a hill, and you would take your pitchfork, and you would have your barley, and you would put the pitchfork in the barley, and then you would throw the barley up in the air, and then when the nice breeze was coming by, the wind would blow the barley away, and the, or it would blow the chaff away, and the seed which was heavier would fall to the ground. So the bad stuff would blow away and the good stuff would fall to the ground. This is what winnowing was. And Naomi knows that because it's the end of the harvest season, that Boaz is gonna be winnowing. Thus far, Ruth has not really had an opportunity to speak to Boaz one-on-one because of the other women, because of the other workers. This will finally give her a chance to speak to Boaz privately. So knowing that he's gonna be winnowing, this is what she tells her to do. Uh, this is verse three. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor. The threshing floor is where you would winnow. But don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, when Naomi tells her daughter-in-law to take a bath, wear nice clothes, put on perfume, She's not saying to her, uh, Ruth, you smell really bad and you gotta take care of your hygiene. She was actually telling her to signal the fact that she was no longer mourning for her dead husband. What we have to understand about Jewish culture is that Jewish culture is extraordinarily visual. Has anybody ever been to a Jewish wedding? What happens during the ceremony? The bride and the groom do what? They stomp on a piece of glass and the idea there is that uh, marriage should be entered into with trepidation because marriages can break, they can fall apart, just like glass can break when you stomp on it. Um, so Jewish culture is very visual. So by telling her daughter-in-law to do these things, she's, telling to her, she's saying to her, signal the fact that you are no longer in mourning and that you are ready to be remarried should the opportunity arise. So she says again, um, take a bath, dress in nice clothes, put on perfume. And then she says, don't approach Boaz 
until he has had something to eat and to drink. Now, this is not about getting Boaz drunk or anything like that. This is about, we tend to be in a better mood after we've had something to eat and drink, amen? We tend to be more agreeable. We tend to be more open to suggestions. I, I saw this meme on Facebook. I thought it was pretty good. This is me before I eat. This is me after I eat. I think this is true for all of us, amen? In fact, uh, Steve uh, Peck, you might appreciate the story. When I was interviewing or just meeting with Asbury Staff Parish Relations Committee, uh, this was the first meeting I had with them. I found out I was coming here as the new pastor and we were meeting on Zoom. I was over in Davenport, Florida and everybody was on Zoom. Well, we were gonna have the meeting earlier in the evening, but then Allison Toller, the chairperson, she was wise enough to say, you know what? I think that uh, if we have the meeting after dinner, everybody will be in a better mood. We don't want anybody to be hangry. You've heard of hangry before? Hangry means that you're angry because you're hungry. Uh, so we tend to be in a better mood after we've had something to eat and drink. But then what usually happens after we've had something to eat and drink is we become groggy, right? And we become tired and we wanna lie down. This happens to us every Thanksgiving. We have this nice big meal. That's why we eat at noontime on Thanksgiving because then we can have a few hours of napping and then wake up and just eat some more food. That's what we all like to do. What happened to the disciples after the Last Supper? They had this huge meal, all this food and all this wine. Then they went to the garden and what did the disciples struggle with? They struggled with staying awake, not just because it was laid out, but also because they'd had all this food and all this wine. So knowing that Boaz is gonna wanna lie down, this is what Naomi tells Ruth to do next. Be sure to notice where he, that would be Boaz, be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Is it hot in here? Is my face red? The temperature just went up 110 degrees. If we were a part of the original audience hearing this story, our jaws would be dropping. We would be racing to cover the ears of our children. What is Naomi asking her daughter-in-law to do here? Now, I'll be honest, this whole part about uncovering the feet, it's kind of ambiguous. Is it a subtle sexual advance? Probably, to some degree at least. Uh, most commentators seem to think so. But what we have to understand is that there's more going on here. It's also a very clever way of ensuring that Boaz is gonna wake up in the middle of the night. Because what happens to us when we're lying down and our feet are uncovered? We wake up and we wanna cover them because we get cold. This happens to us all the time as we're sleeping. There are probably other workers here at the uh, threshing floor. In fact, the text seems to indicate that there were other people because it says, be sure to notice where Boaz lies down. In other words, it's dark outside. You're not gonna be able to see really well. Don't get Boaz mixed up with somebody else. You have to notice where he lies down. Now, all these other guys, they're gonna be sleeping because they would've had this great celebration, eating and drinking. They're sleeping now. So if he wakes up in the middle of the night, then you'll finally have your moment. You'll finally have your opportunity. You could speak to Boaz one-on-one -on -one and you could tell him your intentions. Folks, this is not some half-baked plan that Naomi has come up with. She has thought out everything to the last detail. She should have been in the military. Uh, she is this really strategic thinker. This is what you're gonna do. This is what you're gonna wear. 
this is what's going to happen when he lies down. Some people read this story and they accuse Naomi of being manipulative or overly cunning. I don't think she was. I think she was smart. I think she was clever. I think she was wise. I think she was shrewd. Naomi saw what she believed to be a God-ordained opportunity, and rather than sitting on her hands and doing nothing, she encouraged her daughter-in-law to go for this opportunity and to pursue it. And remarkably, that's exactly what Ruth does. This brings us to Ruth uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. Notice, she doesn't say, you know, Naomi, I like you, I love you, but some of this stuff is kind of shady. I'm only going to do some of what you say. No, I will do everything you say, she replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. Naomi followed the instructions of her mother-in-law, these instructions that came from a sharp mind, and these instructions that were informed by a faith that valued taking initiative and even taking a risk. As I was working on this message, I started to wonder, what's a modern-day example of Naomi? And a lot of you know that I'm a big fan of history. History is one of my favorite subjects. So one of the first persons who came to mind for me is this woman up here. Who is this? This is Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks, whose heroic actions led to what? The Montgomery bus boycott. You know, when we talk about Rosa Parks, we tend to have a misunderstanding about her. A lot of people assume that she was this mild, timid woman. She just randomly got on a bus one day she was tired because she had worked as a seamstress. She didn't feel like giving up her seat, and that led to her arrest. That's not at all what happened. Rosa Parks was a very feisty person. She was a tough person. She was a force to be reckoned with. Rosa Parks was actually an active member of the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. She was the secretary for the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP. And the only thing she was tired of when she got on that bus one day in 1955 is she was tired of the way that blacks were being treated in the South, that they were not being treated equally to their white counterparts, that there wasn't freedom for all of God's children in America. And Rosa Parks knew exactly what would happen by refusing to give up her seat. You know why? Because she had run-ins with that same bus driver in the past, and he had threatened to call the police on her in the past. She knew that most likely she would be arrested but she also sensed that if she were arrested, that that would lead to a movement that would ensure equality for all of God's people. And that's exactly what happened, that she was arrested, and then after her arrest, she was specifically chosen by the NAACP to be the face of their movement. And they chose her because they knew that she was a noble woman, she was a person of integrity, she was a person of character, and therefore her critics, unless they lied, which unfortunately they did, but her critics wouldn't have anything bad to say about her. Rosa Parks engineered a plan that led to the first large-scale demonstration against segregation in the South. Make no mistake about it, Rosa Parks was shrewd just like Naomi was. And folks, God invites all of us, God invites you, God invites me, God invites all of us to be shrewd like that, to, per to perceive the God-ordained opportunities right there in front of us and to have the faith and to have the courage to act on these opportunities, to go for them. Here's what it comes down to. We are people of faith, not fatalist. We're people of faith, not fatalist. Fatalism is remarkably different from faith. You know what fatalism says? Fatalism says it's gonna be what it's gonna be. I could do nothing to change things. I could do nothing to fix things. I might as well accept my lot 
and get used to it. That's not faith. Faith says, I'm gonna follow God's leading. I'm gonna follow God's plans. I'm gonna take some initiative. I'm gonna take some risks, even while knowing that things might not work out exactly as I want them to. Think about it. Naomi didn't know things were gonna work out as she wanted them to. She had no way of knowing how Boaz was gonna respond. She didn't have a crystal ball. For all she knew, this whole thing could have blown up in her face. What if Boaz wakes up in the night and he gets all offended and put off and he tells Ruth, get out of here. You're not permitted to come back into my field. But Naomi sensed, based on Boaz's past behavior with Ruth, that that wasn't gonna happen. That Boaz would wanna marry Ruth. You see, it's true that we're people of faith, not fatalists, but it's equally true that we're people of faith, not fools. We don't just naively do whatever we want and then ask God to bless us. Instead, we use good judgment and discernment. And we only pursue those opportunities that we believe God is behind. Naomi would have never told her daughter-in-law to do what she did if she didn't believe that God was in those plans. And you know what? God was in those plans. Listen to what happens here. This is uh, verses eight through 13 of chapter three. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. I think this next line is kind of funny. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Rishi, replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. In other words, Boaz, marry me, because I know you're related to Elimelech. You have the ability to marry me and have children with me if that's what you desire. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows that you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man, we're gonna talk about him next time, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning, I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well. Let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Does faith involve waiting? Yeah, but it also involves taking initiative and taking risk. And folks, usually on the other side of those risks, when we don't have that crystal ball, we don't know how things are gonna turn out, usually on, those, on the other side of those risks comes the greatest opportunity for blessing and for God's work to go forward. Uh, as I close out this message, I'm gonna share with you a story about Gary Hogan. Uh, you have a, we have a picture of Gary Hogan up here on the screen. Gary Hogan is the founder of this organization called International Justice Mission. International Justice Mission, IJM for short. Uh, it's a Christian organization that seeks to free people trapped in the bonds of sex trafficking, which of course has always been a problem, but I think as we become more global has become an even bigger problem. So a while back, uh, Gary Hogan wrote an article for Sojourners Magazine. Maybe some of you are familiar with Sojourners Magazine. It's a Christian magazine focused on social justice issues. Well, in this article, Gary Hogan describes God's call in his life to start IJM. This is what he says. I vividly remember when I finally had to make a decision to abandon my career at the US Department of Justice to become the first employee of a not-for-profit organization that didn't yet actually exist called International Justice Mission. I had worked for three years with friends on the idea of IJM, 
and was very excited in theory about this dream of following Jesus and the work of justice in the world. But then I actually had to act. I had to walk into the Department of Justice and turn in my badge. I tried to be both very brave and very safe. That is to say, I walked in and asked my bosses for a year-long leave of absence. However, my bosses politely declined. Imagine that. He goes on to write, I was suddenly feeling very nervous. What was I really afraid of? As I thought about it, I feared humiliation. I would be terribly embarrassed having told everybody about my great idea, they would know that it was a bad idea or that I was a bad leader. Either way, it would be humiliating. So there was my boundary of fear. I sensed God inviting me to an extraordinary adventure of service, but deep inside, I was afraid of looking like a fool and a loser. This was actually very helpful to see because it helped me get past it. When I'm older, do I really wanna look back and say, yeah, I sensed that God was calling me to lead a movement to bring rescue to people who desperately need an advocate in the world, but I was afraid of getting embarrassed. So I never even tried. It makes me wonder, what God-ordained opportunities are you and I missing out on because we're too afraid to try? Faith involves waiting, but it also involves taking initiative and taking risk. So by God's grace, let's take some initiative, let's take some risk. Let's see what God does. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I love this story. Thank you for Ruth, for her willingness to listen to her mother-in-law, to follow her plans and her advice. Thank you for Naomi, for the incredible faith that she embodied. Yes, God, faith does involve waiting at times, believing that you are working behind the scenes, even though it might not seem that way. But it also involves taking initiative and taking risk. So please, God, help all of us to take initiative, to take risk, to perceive those opportunities that you are putting there in front of us, to further the work of your kingdom, to advance your purposes on this planet, this planet that you so deeply love, that you came for all of us in the person of Jesus. Lord Jesus, please continue to show us the way. Reveal to us the path that as your people, you would have us go down. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.